0: Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name, for the Lord is good and His love endures forever. Thank you for taking time to join us as we take time to learn from God's Word together. The message you are about to hear comes from the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. Listen to more sermons or learn more about the church at our website, capenazarene.org. Before I read from Acts chapter 5 today, I want to kind of give you a little bit of the background. So uh, the next f- uh, few weeks uh, through May and this week, we're going to kind of look at uh, prayer and uh, how prayer affects our life. And this passage Scripture isn't explicitly about prayer, but then again, it kind of is. It is, it, is about, it is going to be about how bold we are to trust what the Holy Spirit is able to do. But I want to kind of introduce what is happening just before this spot in Acts chapter 5. So the book of Acts uh, uh, begins with uh, Jesus having uh, met with his disciples and he goes back up to heaven and he tells them uh, right uh, right after telling them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then they wait uh, in in a room and the Holy Spirit comes in a mighty powerful way which we're going to celebrate On Pentecost Sunday, when the the Holy Spirit comes, they start speaking in all the languages of the nations around them. They realize that God has moved in a mighty way to equip them for sharing the good news of the gospel. And uh, this Holy Spirit, of course, continues to be with the church. It's going to guide them, to help them in ministry, to help them in life. But shortly after that Pentecost moment, the church starts celebrating together what God is doing. And they become like a miniature picture of heaven. Uh, they're welcoming everyone in. No one has any needs. They're all sharing with one another. This is this is just, uh, just an idyllic kind of community for at least that short period of time. And everyone is coming and joining. It says every day, new and new people are coming and joining the church. And uh, the only issue with that is those who are in power in that area, those who are part of the councils of the church and those who are, Uh, in good with uh, the authorities and the governors uh, uh, put over them, are the same ones who uh, crucified Jesus. That power structure hasn't changed. And so they're not happy about this at all. And so they take the apostles and they imprison them. They put them in prison. And there, what what, uh, Acts chapter 5 at the beginning tells us is, an angel of the Lord comes and frees them from prison. And they leave prison and, uh, and the guards come and they look and they say, we can't find them. Oh no, they escaped. What are we going to do? Uh, we're going to get in trouble. Uh, you know, we don't know where these guys went. And they start to look for them. And where do you think that they would find them? After being arrested for talking about Jesus in the temple, where do you think they would find them? Would you think it'd be back in the temple telling people about Jesus? It was. I mean, this is just kind of crazy. This is kind of ludicrous. Like, you just got arrested for telling people about Jesus in the temple, and you went right back to there to do it again? This is, like, this is like a bank robber going back the next day to deposit the stolen cash into their account at the same bank they stole it from, right? This is like committing a crime and bragging about it on Facebook. This is like a guy pulled over for driving drunk being asked to take a field sobriety test and when he steps out of the car to walk the line, he says to the police officer, here, hold my beer. Like, it just, it just doesn't make sense. Like, like, if you get arrested for this, you just, don't just, like, go back to it. It sounds like the kind of thing you would find, in a, you know, in, in a book of world's dumbest criminals or something. Uh, but, and so the council of high priests see that they're right back at it, and they have them arrested again, and have them brought before the ruling body. Now, when they are brought before the council of churches, this is, not, this is no meaningless event. Like, these people, you know, it's not like now if you go before like some body in, in whatever church uh, you are part of, you know, you might lose your membership or something. But no, this council holds sway with the authorities. It's imprisoned them before, it can do it again, and it was this council that was instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 5, Verses 27 through 32. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior, that He might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. The apostles are brought before the the council. You've been preaching again. You've been telling people about Jesus. We already told you to stop. You already put in Jesus, uh, put in prison for this, and uh, and they say we don't want you to do this. You're going to put Jesus' blood upon us. You, we just heard from the book in, uh, from the book of Deuteronomy when you if you heard that reading, you thought, oh man. Why do we read that one in church? This is why. It is a story that whoever is hung on a pole or on a tree, it could be translated either way as you saw from both the reading and what was on the screen, that that one is considered cursed. And if you get that wrong, if it wasn't someone who was a criminal, if it wasn't someone deserving of God's curse, then the ones who did it also would be considered curse. And so when they said, you're going to put Jesus' blood upon us, it is this word that if indeed Jesus has been raised from the dead and God is validating who He is as the Messiah, then, then this means the blood is upon us. And now this is a universal us. This isn't like a, you know, anti-Semitic, uh-oh, look at that group of people or something. You know, they're at fault. I mean, uh, Peter's not blaming a group of people. Luke, the author, isn't blaming particular people. After all, they're all a part of the Jewish faith as well. But according to their teaching throughout Jerusalem, if Jesus was really the Messiah, if the one cursed on the tree was indeed lifted up by God, then he did not die a criminal or under any curse or guilt And the sin is not his, it is shared by the people. They have wronged God and that just doesn't fly for them. They're worried about, wait, wait, that means it's on us. His blood is on all of us because we've crucified him. But that is precisely part of the message that they're sharing. He has been crucified. We have crucified him. He was dead and buried. And we have every reason to believe that the one hung on the tree unjustly could indeed bring the wrath of God against those who perpetuated such an injustice. But the Pharisees just can't handle that prognosis. They, 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 that just doesn't sit with them. They want to sweep this under the rug as if it never happened. Or as if it's, it's all in the past. Even if, it's only, you know, even if it's only like a few months ago, it's all in the past. But Peter won't let them do that. He holds their feet to the fire and says, We have to own our past we have to own our own participation in antiquities lynching there can be no healing there can be no restoration if we're unable to recognize that blood is on our hands when i was when i was uh, in high school one of the popular uh, christian songwriters at the time was someone named ray boltz He had a song called The Hammer and it's a song that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus and the song as it's wrapping up is saying who is the one who put the nail in his hands? Who is the one who has the hammer? And in the song he turns and he sees the hammer in his own hands. Or, or, or there's an art rendering that uh, what, that uh, I saw going around at that time by Thomas Blackster, the artist of a person in in turmoil and anguish and pain, and Jesus is carrying him, holding him up, and his feet are barely dragging on the ground. Jesus is holding him up so much because of how uh, distraught he is, but yet you see in the art in his hand and in his in his hand one hand is a hammer and the other a nail, and that his mourning is because he realizes what he's done that indeed blood is on our hands. Here's the thing though, the story of Jesus is that there is forgiveness even for those who have been instrumental in wielding those vicious weapons of persecution. There is forgiveness available for all those who have sinned against God who have crucified or been complicit in the crucifixion of His chosen one. Indeed, perhaps even for those who are part of a people who have engaged in those acts specifically, even if not in their own lifetime, but uh, they, they are nonetheless products of that. And so we can even now recognize that uh, uh, we are our sin is, is somehow wrapped up in what Jesus has done, and yet His forgiveness reaches out to us even though that was something from long ago. We can recognize that uh, God desires and hopes to bring reconciliation and forgiveness in our life. And that, reco- and that reconciliation and healing and forgiveness can happen even if we recognize, wait a minute, but those sins or that, that fault was something from long ago. That was from forefathers. That was from someone else. But yet... We still reflect, we find ourselves recognizing it, just as the Old Testament says, that sometimes the sins of our forefathers follows us, but the good news in Jesus Christ is the guilt of it does not have to. Indeed, there can be forgiveness and healing. There's a passage of Scripture in um, Matthew 18. There's a, there's a verse there that I've heard quoted most often. Uh, most often by uh, song evangelists, sometimes by worship leaders. Uh, But uh, I've heard again and again, it's this this promise that wherever two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them, there am I among them. This is what the scripture says. And it's a passage of scripture that has been used again and again in in calls to prayer, in small group gatherings, in worship settings like this, where indeed we recognize or we have gathered together in Jesus' name, He will be with us. And that is a promise in Matthew 18. It's a promise in other passages of Scripture as well. But one of the things I love about Matthew 18 is that verse, and I don't want to take away from what it says just on its own, but that verse has a very unique context. And a unique context is this. Jesus says to his disciples, if you realize that somebody has wronged you, If you realize someone has sinned against you, I want to tell you how to make things right. You're going to go and talk with them. And if you can't talk with them, you're going to bring someone else alongside of you to try to talk to them and bring healing. And if you can't do that, then finally you're going to try to get the church together. And the purpose of this is to bring healing. And if we learned anything from our sacrificial series in the Old Testament, is we recognize that a part of understanding how sin happens is a lot of it's unintentional. A lot of it is, man, I didn't know I had sinned. I didn't realize I had messed up. I didn't realize I was a part of that. that. That a lot of the sacrifices for sin in Leviticus, for instance, were against sins unintentionally committed against God. And I think a lot of times, sometimes we do things and we say, man, that wasn't intentional. Or I didn't do that purposely or that was, that was someone else related to me. That wasn't me. And so we we find ourselves trying to say, oh man, I, I can't be a part of this conversation. I don't want anything to do with it. But Jesus closes that whole talk about trying to make things right by saying this, wherever two or three are gathered, there am I among them. That even in the hard conversations that have to happen in our life, God will be at work to bring restoration, and to bring healing. And so, as much as uh, in Acts chapter 5, they don't want to talk about, they don't want to look at the crucifixion anymore, they don't want them talking about it, because they are afraid of the guilt that's now going to be brought upon them. Uh, but, uh, uh, But the apostles are not, because they recognize that not only this council, but all humanity needs the healing. Needs the forgiveness, and they need to see what God is able to do in our lives to lift us up out of the death and despair caused by just trying to maintain the status quo or or preserving our power and influence. Uh, As an evangelist used to say, uh, "Let us become nothing, so that God can become everything." And so, let's—we're not going to try to hide by who we are, what we've done, or, or where our status is, but say we want to be about what God wants to do in our relationships and among us. When the high priests demand that they be quiet and stop bringing up what happened in the past, the apostles say, we must obey God rather than any human authority. This saying has been an important part of the church for a very long time. It begins here and it continues throughout church history. This idea that our allegiance and our obedience is to God and what he is doing, and not just what the state demands. I think another kind of popular passage of Scripture I've heard again and again is, respect all authority instituted among men. It comes from Romans chapter 13. It's often a passage I hear most often whenever someone we like is in power. But uh, that passage in Romans chapter 13 was written to a church who didn't like who was in power. That Caesar was someone who was out for their heads. Is a way of Paul reminding the church we're not about insurrections. It's a way of saying, hey, we are willing to respect whatever they do, but we are going to honor Jesus Christ in his way of the cross. And so the apostles indeed do respect the authority instituted among men because they're willing to go back to prison where they were just delivered from. But one thing they're not going to do is stop talking about Jesus. And so that is where they're able to say, we are obeying God rather than any human authority and we'll subject ourselves to whatever you do. Obeying God rather than human authority has its roots in this passage. It comes out of a commitment to speak Christ. Even the face of jail time and persecution. This is not like some kind of like grand heroism or or, or rugged individualism. This this is ah, I know who I am. This is them just saying, No, I'm just going to be faithful to Christ. And it will become the cry of the early Christian fathers in the face of Roman persecution. It'll become the cry of early missionaries in hostile territories. Obey God rather than the authorities. It'll become the cry of the Protestant movement. Against church councils, we will obey God rather than any human authority. It will become the cry of Martin Luther King against white political power. We will obey God rather than human authority. And it should also be our response too when I hear things like that come out of like the Eastern Russian Orthodox Church that tells its people to fight for the sake of their nation state rather than follow the way of the cross. Will we obey God? Or human authority. You see, what Acts 5 shows is that when the church enters into the allegiance with the powers of this world, like the council of the church did, that the disciples of Christ must stay committed to God, specifically the God revealed in the crucified and resurrected Christ. After all, as Peter reminds the church, the one who resurrected this Christ, the one who legitimized his ministry, sanctified his sacrifice, indeed showed that forgiveness is even possible, is the very God they're claiming as their own. What he says to them, it's your God, it's our God who exalted him and lifted him up, this one who was supposed to be cursed. He's saying Jesus brings our repentance and Jesus brings our forgiveness. In order to have a right relationship with God, it comes because Jesus brings that forgiveness. I actually find myself really becoming enthralled with that line in here. When he says to him, God exalted him, As leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Uh, I've heard about Jesus giving forgiveness. I've preached this for a long time. Jesus gives us forgiveness. But I like the phrase that he gives us repentance. That's an odd way of looking at it. Usually the way we think of it is we think of it as some kind of contractual thing. I'll repent. I'll say I'm sorry. I'll do whatever I have to do. And then, because I've done that, God brings forgiveness. I've met this condition, now God will meet that condition. But what he says in here, in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, is he gives repentance. He allows us and equips us and helps us to even put ourselves before a holy God and recognize how much we need him. It's a way of saying God's at work in our lives before we ever even said, God, I need you. God's at work in the lives of loved ones around us before they ever walk in the doors of a church. God is at work bringing us to salvation, working mysteriously in the hearts and minds of people before we can even see clearly the fruits of repentance. In our church, in the Church of the Nazarene, we have have a technical term for that. We call it prevenient grace or grace that goes before salvation. As believers in the grace of God and even that grace of God who's still at work in our life, we believe that he is at work now and he is at work today. And so part of our, part of our hope, part of our impetus for the next month is to ask God to make himself readily available and indeed to soften our hearts, to change lives, to make Himself more and more real and available and evident in the lives of those around us. Because indeed, He is at work bringing us to repentance. And so there is a call for us, for the church, a call to prayer leading all the way up into Pentecost, a season where we recognize the Holy Spirit moved in a mighty way because we are hoping and we are praying that the Holy Spirit will indeed move in a mighty way in our lives, but also in the lives of loved ones and the lives of our neighbors, that God would indeed bring to fruition repentance in our communities, in our neighborhoods, that God would, with that, bring forgiveness and the healing of sins, sins committed, And sin's long forgotten that God is able to do this. This is a part of the promise of the resurrection. This is the part of the promise that we celebrated last week. That uh, these uh, apostles say to the council, we are witnesses to that resurrection. We saw this. They didn't just hear the story about Jesus. They didn't just have this story handed down to them like we did. They saw Jesus, the resurrected one. And Thomas, called Didymus, touched and saw the wounds in his hands and in his side and knew, indeed, this is not some poser. This is the Jesus who was crucified. And so they testify that the God Who raises from the dead the one that we would think is too broken or cursed. Yet God says, I desire to redeem and redeem all of humanity who might see itself too far gone or cursed. And so we're going to be praying to participate in whatever ways God might call us to help be a part of the saving, resurrecting power of God in the lives of people to speak when we're able to speak about God's grace, to testify about where the Holy Spirit is working, to talk about freedom given, and indeed to pray that God's Holy Spirit will give freedom from sin in our life and will ultimately give freedom from death to liberate and raise us from the brokenness of our defeats into a victorious life with Jesus Christ. You see, the boldness of the apostles here to speak before this council doesn't doesn't happen because of a character trait. They're not like, great historic uh, a heroic people no remember they're, they're the people who ran away and were denying jesus they're the ones who didn't want to go to the cross they were the ones who were too afraid they were not exceptionally brave and it doesn't and it doesn't become and and the, their boldness to continue to uh, preach isn't because to reference what i mentioned at the beginning of the sermon they're dumb criminals or something like that no their boldness comes because they absolutely believe in the resurrection. They were witnesses to it. And as such, they can't help but talk about it. And the resurrection means there's hope for us. There is life after death. There is victory in the face of defeat. There's a chance at healing and redemption. Even after terrible tragedies. Indeed, even terrible tragedies that seem to have held on for generations. We don't hide from them, but trust wherever two or three are gathered, the Holy Spirit is there too. We trust there can be forgiveness. We trust there is a resurrection. And we trust that the Heavenly Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is best revealed in and among the crucified, the broken, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the refugee, the have-nots of our world and thereby seeing that our salvation is indeed, has always been, entirely by grace. We believe God is still breaking chains and liberating people today. And so let us be a people who celebrate that resurrection power in the lives of people today and ask our God how we can be a part of that. And I'm going to invite you next week to commit to a time of prayer every day to help see how the Holy Spirit is going to continue to work and liberating and healing people today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word and this, this brief verses that remind us, Heavenly Father, Your call to forgiveness, Your call to repentance, and how You are at work doing that in our lives before we are even uh, aware of it and so heavenly father today we're going to go back out into this world in anticipation that lord you've already moved there that lord you are already at work in ways we can't even begin to see but lord we have faith and trust in you and we just want to be a part of what you are doing help us heavenly father to enter into the role of witnesses as your disciples your apostles did And uh, Lord, we trust and we pray that your Holy Spirit will do something mighty in our lives, in our loved ones, in our friends, and in our communities. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about how Jesus can make a difference in your life, please email Pastor John at pastorjohn at May God richly bless you as you serve him today.